Darby cast Monday sports. And we've got a bit of a curveball for all you sports stars who like sports analogies. A curveball is when something unexpected happens. And rather than have Maddie J on this sports cast, we've got a different kind of competitor, a way different kind of competitor. And it's Z Money. Hey, what's going on? Glad to be back, Darby listeners. Wow. I can already tell that this is going to be an utter disaster. So, Z, growing up, you weren't really uh, what we'd like to call much of a sports guy, were you? Well, I grew up in Vegas. And up until recently, with the sports there, there weren't any home teams. And we had some minor league baseball, but with the new uh, hockey team there. Now, I guess they're pretty good from what I've heard. But when I was young, no home team. So I never really got into sports. It's hard to root for a team without having a home team. Well, in Vegas, you must have been a budding compulsive gambler. Isn't that what the youth of Vegas often get involved with? Oh, yeah. No, not really. Well, you get comped a lot of stuff when you go to Vegas now. So don't try to downplay it as though you're not a problem gambler through and through. Oh, I'm not a problem gambler. And that's what that's that's what someone who <laughs> sounds, would say. Yeah, sounds awfully like something a problem gambler would well, say. What's actually interesting though is what I've noticed in Vegas is you you kind of have two different types of people that live there. A lot of people that just don't gamble at all, and then people that are problem gamblers. It's hard to find that much in between because it's so easy to gamble there. For example, you go into a grocery store, they have a section, a little row of slot machines for you to gamble when you're getting your groceries, which is crazy to think about. The gas station, you go in to get a bottle of water while pumping your gas, you stop in and play a few rounds of the slot machine. So how does a problem gambler like yourself really deal with something like that? Like when your wife says to you, hey, babe, would you just like go get some diapers for the baby? And you come back empty handed and you're like, sorry, I, I was gambling at the grocery store. I went there, but I got sidetracked. I was gambling. You get it, huh, babe? <laughs> Interesting idea. No, what's up? No, I'm, it's not an interesting idea. That's your life. Okay. Okay. See? If you say so. <laughs> But this is an intervention. <laughs> it is in, an interesting way to, to combat gambling issues is actually to blacklist yourself from a casino. I've known of people that do that. They'll call up the casino, basically ask them to be kicked out if they enter. It's essentially telling them that you don't want to gamble anymore and that they should just kick you out as if you are trespassing. You can be added voluntarily to that list for a casino. And I think they have to legally follow that. Is gambling on sports something that you like to do? Like if you're gambling and technically poker is considered a sport. I mean, it was on ESPN, World Series of Poker, WSPTO. Uh, That's a big deal. Daniel Negreanu, Phil Helmuth. You know, a great quote by Phil Helmuth. He was a professional poker player, probably still is. He said, if luck weren't involved in the game, that he would win every time. What do you think about that? 
I'm not much of a gambler. I know. I know. I've tried to tell you that already. It's okay. I don't gamble on sports. Actually, I've gambled one time on sports on a college game. I I just picked a team and I, I end up winning. I don't even remember which team. Wow. The, the only game I really play in Vegas is blackjack and, and poker. But I play rarely. I used to count cards. I've been asked to leave certain casinos for counting back when I was 21, 22. Go into that. What's that look like? What does it look like to get kicked out? Or I was going to say count cards, but also like how embarrassed did you feel when they called you out on your nonsense and were like, sir, we don't like your brand of uh, a competitive spirit. You're a little too competitive and you're using your brain in a way that you're not supposed to. You're not drunk enough. What's the deal? Just go into it. Talk about it. I was talking to this couple next to me. I was, if you want to blend in, you can't just be sitting there studying cards, moving your lips to yourself. You got to be talking. You got to act like you're just hanging out. But yeah, you know, I was gambling, talking to the couple next to me. Next thing I know, the pit boss just comes up, takes his hand and swats my stack of chips that I'm betting before the next hand. He pushes it back and says, sir, you can never play blackjack here again. You could play any other table game, anything else. You can just never play blackjack again. So I didn't quite get kicked out. I just can't play blackjack there. So how did they know that you knew what the heck was going on? Because that's like, there are a couple movies where you see some counting of cards. You know, you want to talk about Rounders. Rounders was a great poker movie. I don't know if there's a whole lot of card counting. What was a good card counting movie? Was it? The movie called 21? Yeah, right. And then uh, wasn't Kevin Spacey in that? He's kind of out of the spotlight these days. Yeah, Kevin Spacey was the the professor at MIT. That's who he played. And he's the one that assembled a team of students that would go and do a big league blackjack counting ring. How does that work? I know you're well-versed in the academic discipline of combinatorics. Now, why don't you explain to people what that is? Because it's a, it's a mouthful. Combinatorics is the study of counting, the study of, of numbers. So if closed you, systems, correct? Uh, doesn't necessarily have to be closed. It could be, I don't know if this is useless to list. <laughs> this conversation is going to get really scientific really fast. Who gives a shit? <laughs> it's just like, it's talking about like infinite systems. <laughs> Listen here, pal. The Darby Cast doctors are a heady bunch. And I like that the Darby Cast goes and runs the full gamut of highbrow to lowbrow. Gambit or gamut? I said gamut, right? Gamut. So can we pick back up on combinatorics or are we going to? So combinatorics, the study of counting, the study of enumeration. So for example, when you say, how many different ways are there to get a royal flush when I know the guy next to me already has an ace and a king? Something like that. That's what the field of combinatorics encompasses. And so you know about that, and that's how the pit boss, 
he just saw that look and he'd be like, that's a combinatorix fellow if I've ever seen one. And do you put off a vibe of a problem card counter? Like, do people ever come up to you and they're like, you seem like a card shark and like you are bad for the house? I would say most people do not know that. Most people, the average person is not really looking for that type of thing when they're playing. They're probably in their own world. As in most cases, usually people are more interested in themselves. However, with counting, the giveaway is the way the person varies their bets. The gambler will have to change their bets based on the condition of the cards. There's no way around that. If I bet $10 every hand, I could be the best counter in the world. It's not going to give me an edge. The only way to get the edge is to bet more money when I know better cards are on their way. That's the only way. So given that, the way you can tell someone's counting is to look at the way they vary their bets. If someone's changing their bet from $10 to $100, usually they're either drunk or counting cards. Maybe it's just someone is having a good time, just wants to say, hey, I'm going, putting in a lot of money on this hand. Let's see how it goes. But if they continue to do that after three, four, five, six, seven hands, they're either drunk or counting most likely. And I can usually tell when someone at a table is counting within about seven to eight hands, usually pretty easily I know if someone's counting based on the way they vary their bets. So you could have been a pretty successful pit boss If you wanted to, like you could have been the guy who put his hand on your shoulder and said, get out of this establishment. You're bad for business. I know what you're doing. You disgust me, but I'm also impressed by you. Let's get a beer later. Let's go catch a game. Like, do you appreciate a cheeseburger? How did that conversation sound after? How did you respond? Because I know he put his hand on your chips and was like, sir, you can't play blackjack here anymore. And was that the end of it? Or did you look him in the eye and you were like, dude, I respect you. Good eye. Dude, let's go play darts. Let's goof around. I know this little steakhouse. Tough to get a reservation, but I want to take you there. I think you and I'd be kind of close. And the conversation went from there, right? Not at all. The truth is, well, first of all, The truth is that counting cards is not difficult at all. I can teach someone probably in fourth or fifth grade how to count cards. I'm not exaggerating. Now, to understand the probability behind that and expected value computations, that would be extremely tough to teach probably the average person. But just to teach the methodology is very easy. For example, as an analogy, I can teach a 14, 15 year old how to drive a car. Can I explain to them the fluid dynamics of how the gas moves through the pumps and how the compression inside the pistons causes somehow thrust and causes the wheels to turn with torque? That'd be much harder to do. But in this case, it's the same idea. With counting cars, you could teach someone. You keep a running number in your head. It goes up every time you see a low card, like a two through six, and it goes down every time you see a face card or a 10 or an ace. So basically, if you see a lot of small cards, that number goes up to being higher. If you see more 
face cards, that number gets lower. The idea is you see a lot of low cards in this hand. That means chances are the face cards are coming out soon, right? And that's where you make your money. You bet more when you know the big cards are about to come because if you hit a blackjack, you're making good money. Three to two. And that's the trick. So let's take this full circle. And I think if I didn't even preface this conversation by saying you're not a big sports guy, I think people probably caught that by what you just said, because you're a nerd, right? (laughs) I guess so. Listen, I'm so impressed by whenever you speak, I love hearing the things that you got to say. And it usually goes halfway over my head. I catch a couple of details here and there. But in all seriousness, I was into sports in a big way as a kid. You have the mind of somebody who just needs to be dialed into things that are utterly complex all the time. What was your competitive outlet growing up? Because mine was basketball, right? I dunked in my eighth grade student faculty game, and that cemented me as a cool kid, sort of. I kind of blew it all the time by talking. People didn't think I was that sweet. But how did your competitive side manifest itself when you were growing up? Good question. While you were playing basketball, I was playing chess. I was in the chess club back in elementary school. And to be honest, I didn't even really want to be there. My mom made me. It was fun, though. My friends were in it, the whole crew of nerds. And we actually won the state championship in chess for uh, elementary school division. What did that feel like? It felt good. I don't think I really thought about it too much because it's not like the buzzer comes, you hit a shot, you win the game, you win the championship. It's kind of like the slow moving tournament where you have a bunch of different schools with different players playing one-on-one games. And then the score just gets tallied up and says, all right, here's the winner. It's kind of like in like track or cross country, how they keep track of all the individual teammates and then add up the points at the end. Sure. Kind of like that. I imagine championships in those types of sports are a lot less thrilling than a, a real team championship like in basketball. Yeah, I don't know. I don't see a whole lot of emotion coming out of elite level chess players. Do you still have a passion for the game? With that early success that you had in elementary school? No, I, I kind of lost it around probably seventh, eighth grade, ninth grade. I just kind of. What superseded your love of chess? What slid in and took the throne as the Z money activity of choice? Because obviously you're a competitor, but you just expressed that in a very different way than, for example, I did. So. Chess was out. What was next? So, okay, I'll say senior year of high school, junior year of high school, I got into, at my school, they, had, they called it Varsity Quiz. It was a game basically like Jeopardy, but a team version of it. Wow. Which was trivia of all types of questions. But then there's another event called Science Bowl, which was specifically science questions. Great. And my team, so the team consists of you know, I can't even remember anymore. I believe it's four or five people. And it's kind of like Jeopardy where one person on the team can ring in if they know. Any person. And then you have 10 seconds to discuss and then one person can answer. 
So we actually got to the final round and it was broadcasted on local television. You were broadcast on local TV for a elite level youth science game show. It was the state championship. Whoever won got to go to Washington, D.C. for the final round. So this was in Nevada. This was in Nevada. Was your competition that fierce or do you feel like you pretty much steamrolled everybody and it was a joke? Well, we actually lost. Wow. Boy, is that embarrassing. I would say competing in California would probably be a lot tougher just due to the sheer difference in population size. But anyway, the way it worked was it was double elimination. So you actually can lose one round and then you're in the loser's bracket. It's not really the loser's bracket, but the single loss bracket. And then the winner from that bracket has to play the winner from the winner's bracket up to two times at the end. So what happened was we did not lose at all. We got to the very end, to the final round. Wow. And then we had to beat the team from the other bracket that lost once. We only had to beat them one time. We lost. We had two chances. That's how it worked. And so this probably still makes you lose sleep to this day, it sounds like. Uh, I think we, we were close to winning. I haven't really thought about it in a long time. But it's haunting you right now in this moment, correct? Well, it should. I mean, if it isn't, I'd be a little bit surprised, to be honest. It would have been really fun to win. Getting to go to D.C. when you're 17, 18, all paid for trip and a big check for the school. We still got a hefty check for our school. They gave us one of those big checks take a picture with. I think it was like $5,000 for the school. That's pretty nice. Did the school recognize you in any way? Yes. So the coach of the science bowl took us out to Cheesecake Factory for a lunch. That's kind of tight. Which was really cool to get to go to Cheesecake Factory with your team and your coach on the school's money. It's pretty nice. I guess it's kind of the money we won, but still it was cool. I've had some great coaches in basketball, but I've never been on an academic competition type circuit. I've certainly never been a scientific whiz. I mean, my scientific career really peaked when I was in the GATE program. You were in GATE, were you not? I'm not familiar with that. Are you really not? I think I might have heard it. Is that the gifted and talented? education? Yeah. I think they quickly realized they made a mistake with me and they were like, all right, (laughs) retire him immediately. But I did get a trip to space camp. I went to a, I went to space and rocketeering. Must be a California term. I don't think they use that word. You had to have been in a similar program. Like what was it called? I just was in the normal program. That's definitely not true. I was. Well, it's hard to say. What do you mean it's hard to say? I spent some time in in Brooklyn for high school. Wow. Okay. So the plot thickens. So what I know, I know this, the Darby Cast doctors don't. You went to an elite level high school in Brooklyn. What was that high school all about? It was a science high school. There's a, a group of what they call specialized science high schools in New York City's public school system. I think there actually might be five now. I think they might have added to in the last 10, 15 years or so. But you basically take a test to get in. And these schools are 
very specialized in science programs. And the school I went to, you actually had to pick a major by your junior year, which consisted of some sort of engineering curriculum. There were a few other ones, physics, and a lot of stuff I learned there, I actually ended up learning again when I was in college. So they were teaching us a lot of college level things, junior year of high school. And so were there sports teams at your high school or was, how was the, the social hierarchy at your school stratified? Were the science whizzes, like were they what would parallel your quote unquote kind of the in crowd with the jocks and the cheer squad, the pep squad. Like, were there a bunch of you who were really sharp and you just took some of the nerdy chicks aside and you're like, hey, we've, you and I, little lady, you and I have chemistry, wink, wink. And that was like your idea of a science joke and you were kind of the BMOC. Was that? Am I imagining this or is that exactly how it was? That's all imagined. There were no, I think we had sports. I know we had sports. Nobody knew anything about them. I did not know one person on any team there. So this high school I went to though, it had about 5,000 students and people came from all over the five boroughs of New York City to come to the school. So you really didn't have a lot of people that would just hang out and stay. They'd have to take the subway back home. I would take the subway home 45 minutes there and back each day. So there really wasn't much of a social life there. I don't even know if I can name popular people there, which is really weird to think about as a high school. That there was no social stratification, that you were all a bunch of lone wolf geniuses who came in from your respective spots and you just, and then you're like, okay, bye. And that was it. Yeah, it was kind of like a factory there. They'd have four different lunch periods because the school was so big and you would have to show student ID to get into the building and they would not let you in until 10 minutes before school started. And then you basically would have to leave right after school was over if you weren't there for another reason like a club. So they had the NYPD school safety branch of security officers walking around. And it felt kind of like a prison, to be honest. This is how the New York City schools are. Okay. So just a prison for ultra smart kids. That's, uh, I think they have protocols for every school just in general. So they have to apply them to every public school in the, in the system. Sure. So I don't think they would exempt our school just for that reason. But just due to the sheer size of the school, we didn't have any outdoor areas, really. It was an all indoor school, about 10 stories high. And you would walk to your different classes on the different stories and you'd kind of just go home after you were done. I knew people in class and that's about it. That sounds not as fun as other high school experiences that I've seen in movies. But then again, those are movies. But this is a sports cast, Z Money. This is sports. This is Darby Cast Sports. So you, as a mathlete, and as an engineer and a science nerd, you have a lot of skills to really enter the world of sports gambling in a big way and crush. And you and I, we've talked about this because we got you involved in the fantasy league, the fantasy football league a couple of years ago. And 
you've always really just phoned it in, even though deep down, all of us in the league, we are terrified for that moment when you decide that it matters to you. And then it's kind of all over for us. But you've talked to me before about completely dominating things like DraftKings and FanDuel and other sports gambling whodunits. Talk to me about how you would do that. Yeah. Do we want to keep this a secret in case? No, there's no secret in explaining it. I'm sure this is already happening. But the idea is is not much different to how a lot of these stock market algorithms work. If you think about it, there are algorithms for the stock market that these firms use to trigger buy and sell signals. And what they're doing is they're pouring over all sorts of data in real time to interpret what's going on faster than a human would be able to. So for example, to give you an idea, there are algorithms that look at the tenor of tweets on Twitter for certain words, or they look at annual reports or quarterly reports put out by companies in the stock market. So they'll look at the tenor of these, of the text, hear the words, maybe like, we are excited or we expect good results or it'll look for certain words like that and assign it either a positive or negative uh, connotation connotation based on something that it might take a human five hours to read the entire report. Now, you take all the thousands of publicly traded companies, no human would be able to read all these reports, but a computer can read all these within seconds. If you have enough computing power, you could read that every single report that's come out in the past year within probably seconds or minutes, if you have enough computing power. Right. So to draw the parallels into sports is if you have access to all of the same information that a human does, but you can synthesize all of those pieces of information, all of those variables and their interplay with a let's just call it a voracious rapidity that eventually you can start drawing conclusions that would be somewhat invisible to the naked eye or to draw those same conclusions for a human being would be so time intensive that it wouldn't necessarily be a good utilization of one's time. Yes, definitely. So think of it this way. Well, let me backtrack a little bit. So there are, there are tools right now <clears throat> that provide, there are these tools that provide NFL data of every single play. It keeps track of the weather at the time, the sound level and decibels inside the stadium, the time of day of the play. So every single play of every single game has this data encoded into a system where you can pay to have access to this. How much would a full game report cost? Because I'm guessing you've looked this up. I don't think they do it by games. A lot of these tools don't even have their pricing online. It's one of those things where you have to contact sales to get more info, which means it's expensive. Sure. The one that I did see that had the price publicly available was about, from what I remember, three to $500 a month. You can use as much as you want while you're paying. 
basically it's subscription-based. That's actually not that bad of a deal depending on how you're utilizing the data, right? Right. So what I would do if I were to design an algorithm for this is to look for patterns. Let's say for some reason you have a player, let's call them, you know, let's just say player A. Let's make it real. Let's say Texans receiver DeAndre Hopkins. Okay. Let's say DeAndre Hopkins. Every time, let's say he plays a game where it's above 70 degrees and the noise level in the stadium is higher than a certain number of decibels, he has a better chance of catching the ball. Let's just say something weird like that. A computer could find this type of information easily. Whereas a human, for you to look for these types of patterns would be extremely complicated and time consuming. It would take you till the end of time to really find anything of significant value. But a computer can hone in on stuff that looks like it might make sense. Sure. And there are special algorithms, which I've written for some stuff in in graduate school. They call them genetic algorithms. And they model themselves based on evolution and survival of the fittest. And it sounds really complicated, but the idea is not. The idea is when you're doing these simulations, you come up with the hypothesis, a theory. If that theory makes sense, you take that theory and you vary it a little bit. So let's say with that example just now with DeAndre Hopkins, anytime it's higher than a certain, you know, 70 degrees and louder than a certain level, he does better. Sure. Let's say he does 10% better on average with those conditions. Well, if that works, Let's try and change it to say randomly. Let's just say, why don't we pick randomly, roll some dice, which is basically what the computer does, and decides, okay, let's change it from 70 degrees to 80 degrees. See how that comes out. Is he 10% better? Oh, let's say he's 8% better. Well, that one kind of falls off the grid because it's not survival of the fittest. It's considered worse than the last one, 8% better versus 10%. So you see where I'm going with this. Basically, so the computer is basically testing against its own hypotheses and then throwing out anything that doesn't prove as more efficient than the algorithm or the set of variables with the highest correlative output thus far. Yes? Right. It basically randomly mutates what you can call genes. Imagine each thing in the hypothesis is a gene or a chromosome. You're going to vary those randomly. And you're going to generate like a thousand different random trials, 70 degrees, 72 degrees, 68 degrees, while you vary other values, the time of day, evening or morning. You vary a bunch of these at the same time. You have a thousand different trials at once. Maybe you take the top 10 that do the best. You take those, you vary those a little bit and you start all over and you just continue. But every other variable, we've talked about this before, every additional variable that you add to the equation is going to increase the uh, computational demand by an exponential factor, yes? That's right. So if I go from adding just weather and sound level in the stadium to now adding who they're playing against, which team they're playing against, and then I add... The individual defender. Individual defender. And then I add what the current score of the season is for the team. Their record, yeah. Their record. Let's say they're 7-2, 6-3. If we add that in two. So as we vary the values and add more different, what we call, let's say an axis, each variable is like a different axis. As you add more of these axes, it becomes much harder to compute the different values. And sometimes there may not be enough data. That's where having 
more data helps. But as with any algorithm like this, it's not necessarily predictive. For example, if it could just be, if I say every time the Texans win a game, DeAndre Hopkins tends to do better. That doesn't help me. That's not much prediction power, right? Because that's saying if they win, he probably did well. That kind of makes sense. He's one of their best players. He would have to be involved if they were going to win, most likely. So not all data really helps you. Some's given, but not all data will really help you predict. So really what you want to do is find data that'll help you predict. So stuff that's known beforehand. I don't know the level of sound in the stadium until afterward. I might not know the temperature in the stadium until afterward, but I do know who they're playing, what their record is, maybe have a weather forecast. Whether it's turf or grass, whether whether it's it's in a dome or outdoors. Right. If it's the game before Christmas, if it's the game before Thanksgiving, all those types of things we'll know beforehand, which might have some predictive power based on the past. So to make this an economically viable strategic play, right? You would need to basically be making very huge bets that offset the cost of not only you doing the data collection, but the computational work too. And to have a computer that was powerful enough to compute as many variables as you so chose, would you use cloud computing? Would you build your own server? What would that look like? Almost definitely use cloud computing. I'm not in the business of running servers. I've worked at companies in the Bay Area that have their own computing farms. And it's no joke. You need those rooms are kept at 60 degrees many times. Uh, they have custom AC systems that go through the ground and blow cold air up from the ground. These systems are very hard to create, expensive. I would just use a cloud-based provider like Amazon Web Services or Microsoft Azure or Google Cloud. Okay. And with those, I could just rent computers on demand and I pay by the minute or second that they're on. So let's say I decide I want more computers. I just start using another one. I go into the little dashboard on the website and say, I want five computers right now. It's a little bit more complex than that. You have to pick the certain dimensions of the computer, how much memory, how much computing power per computer. But that's basically the idea. Well, that's how these, certainly these daily fantasy uh, sites, the, like I said, the DraftKings, the FanDuel, I was looking at some numbers a couple of years ago for these sites, and it's something like two or 3% of the user base nets about 90% of the earnings. And even in that two or 3%, there are a select few users who are still winning the bulk of the winnings, right? And there was a little bit of research that went into this, and this was mainly for baseball betting, the daily fantasy, pick your lineup, you have a certain salary cap, and then you get to go ahead and pick a combination of players. It turns out the players who were winning at this were elite level masters and PhD uh, statisticians, and they were dominating it. It's not as though these people were necessarily baseball junkies. So it's funny because somebody like you, who has a very profound understanding of computing uh, probability numbers, you have an appreciation for really dominating sports, at least in a sports gambling kind of capacity, 
and you have the ability to be more successful than even your most diehard sports fan. And that in itself is a paradigmatic shift that is happening in the world all around us, not necessarily just in sports, right? Oh, this happens. And I'm sure we've talked about this before, just the way that Facebook, Google, Apple, the way they use our data, the way they can predict what you like before you even realize you like it. So when they show you an ad and it turns out you really love this thing that you never even heard of, that's exactly what I'm talking about. These algorithms that can compute data for hours and hours on end that a a normal human would not be able to catch patterns like this. So it's the same idea. We're catching patterns that a head coach himself might not know without a computer to help him. I have no doubt that the good NFL teams have data nowadays. They must. I don't... I don't know much about football, but if they were smart, they would have these algorithms running on their own team. I don't see why they would not. If I were even working anywhere near a head coach, I'd be saying you need data like this. If an NFL head coach called you up tomorrow and said, hey, I want you to start building my statistical analysis. Here's your budget. Could you do it? Could you meaningfully affect? The outcome of a game, do you think? I because I think you could. I believe so. I can say that with almost. I'd be willing to bet with a hundred percent certainty if they're not already using data, I could make the game better for them. There's so much that goes into that. Think about how many players are on one team. How would a head coach be able to know if a certain player maybe gets tired at three p.m. on afternoon games when it's higher than eighty degrees? and their performance goes down significantly. Maybe only one or two players and the other ones are fine. But for him to keep track of all these different things, maybe certain players don't do that well in the really loud stadiums. In that case, a coach might want to switch out a linebacker when it's really loud and they're on defense for a linebacker that does better when the stadium is extremely loud. Stuff in real time that might help him Once they know the data, they can have little triggers that will alert him during the game. Hey, this player might not be the best choice right now, might not be the optimal choice. Now, the head coach is the ultimate decision maker, and I would never doubt him. If he says no, I see this alert, I understand what it's saying, and I don't like it, that's completely 100% fine because, like I was saying, data does not always make sense. I think. What it should be used for is to guide the decision makers. And if they want to override it for whatever reason that makes sense, they should because the data is not always accurate. But how is the head coach going to keep track of all these different players? Maybe the slight performance hits they take at different times. But imagine having that data, what they could do with that. Right. And I think that's probably being done. And it's funny because you talk about sports controversies of stealing signs. You talk about deflate gate when really the greatest competitive advantage that may exist for any given sports team, regardless of the sport, is having a resounding command of data analytics, data science, and then knowing how to communicate the information that is presented and crunched in by these. I don't know, these algorithms and say, okay, well, we got to switch, like you said, from the 3-4 defense, let's 
pop it to a four man front and pull one of the linebackers because he gets rattled in these situations when the game is within a single touchdown with five minutes left. This player tends to make mistakes. He tends to routinely get more penalties, right? Exactly. That, that he loses his composure and say, okay, all right, this guy is amazing most of the time, but in just about every situation that we've seen where the game is close with under this amount of time, this player is notorious for false starting or for committing personal fouls, something like that. I mean, that would be fascinating information. And I wonder if NFL teams have that kind of information at their disposal. They may. I would imagine the good ones do. It's such a high stakes game that it'd be it'd be stupid. It'd be asinine not to have it, to be honest, when they're spending millions of dollars on one player and they're not going to spend even a hundred grand a year on some data. It doesn't make sense to me. Sure. But like you were saying, that's a great example when the point difference is very low and there's one touchdown difference and the time's about to expire, right? They're almost at the end of the game. And here's where I say the head coach can override the decision is because let's say that we don't have that much data. Let's say we have a new player that just came from college Mm. and he's only been in two games in this situation where it's almost the end of the game with one touchdown difference. So statistically our confidence level will not be that high in the last data. If I play one game and fumble, does that make me a bad player? I don't know. Maybe. It's hard to say. Maybe not. Maybe I just had a bad game. If I had 50 games and I fumbled once, clearly that's not as big of a deal. You're pretty solid, depending on the position you're playing. Right. That's where having statistical confidence matters. So having more data will help you have more confidence in, in the decision. So the way I see it is when you show the coach this alert, it says maybe you should do this. And here's the statistical confidence with maybe... 50%, 40%, 90% confidence. So the higher the confidence is, the more data the computer had during its analysis, so the more sure it is of this predictive pattern. So I want to bring this all the way full circle, that if you were doing such a thing, say you're not working for an NFL team, you're not doing this for the goal of winning games, bringing the organization prestige, right? Say you're doing it as a gambler. And you're dominating because you have like the greatest sports predictive algorithm for, let's say, NFL games ever conceived. Do you think these companies would ever act as a proverbial pit boss and be like, this dude is winning way too much money? He always wins. He wins invariably. Could they put a hand on your back and say, get the hell off this app. We can't allow you to play this ever. Is that cheating? That's my question to you. Or is it just utilizing all of the resources available to you and utilizing them the best? I think that is the philosophical question that goes beyond sports and is kind of the, it's, it's a philosophical conundrum of big data and data analytics is, is it cheating or is it just playing the game better? That's a lot of question right there and a lot of good points. So as far as the websites deciding whether to allow a person to play or not, Fantasy Kings or... or DraftKings FanDuel. FanDuel. (laughs) Yeah, you're you're with it. (laughs) 
<laughs> you can tell I play a lot. So these companies, they don't care. Don't downplay it, you problem gambler. <laughs> <laughs> these companies don't care if you win or lose because you're not playing against them. You're playing against other players, from what I understand. Sure. It's kind of like when you play poker at the casino. The house takes its cut no matter what. You're playing against other players. They cannot care less who wins or loses. They don't care. But when you're playing blackjack, you're playing against the house. So the house is taking the other side of the bet. So they do care about that. So with the online fantasy football leagues, for them, if you're not playing against them, they don't really care. You're playing against other players. However, the only thing I can see is if people get upset, hey, these assholes are playing with algorithms and they're beating everyone, they get pissed and leave. That's already happening, but people are still playing, right? Because gambling, surprise, surprise, is quite addicting. The worst thing that can happen for anybody, and it's funny because people say, oh, I've got an addictive personality. It's like, no, you just have a brain. That's how the brain works is we're wired to go after things that feel good. So the worst thing that can really happen to somebody when they're gambling is a humongous victory, right? That's the stuff that hooks you is, <laughs> is that first huge victory. So I think you've got a lot of casuals who will maybe throw some bones into FanDuel or DraftKings, they'll get hooked on it. And they're a small-time player. They think that they can use anecdotal evidence and say, oh, well, this guy's my favorite player. I'm going to put him on my team. But little do they realize is that this is already going on. They're playing against mega players who are going to routinely clean house. And you're right. It probably is entirely inconsequential for the company itself because their vested interest in the game is just that people play. Yes? I can see that they'd want to keep it fair, right? Because that's game theory. If people playing on their on their app perceive that others are cheating, those people playing. might quit. Yes. So the websites and apps want to keep as many people as possible. So that's the only reason for them, that's the only incentive for them to want to root out anyone who's quote cheating, unquote, right? Um, how do you root people out that are using extra data? There's no answer to that. There's no way to know. You're running computers on your own time, computing data, and then they just come in and make some choices of who they want on their team. There's no way that you're going to know who's, who's using extra data. So it's virtually impossible to know. You would only really know on the back end, like the site would know on the back end and say, okay, this person wins they win money 85% of the time, which is statistically absurd. So if you're gambling in any game, if you win 51% of the time, you're making money, right? So if somebody wins over a certain threshold on a consistent basis, you'd have to think that, okay, this person is utilizing some kind of tool that is allowing them to do better. But hey, that's the story of human history, that's is it not? That's a big assumption. That's a big assumption. What if someone just really understands the sport and you're going to penalize them by kicking them off the platform? I'd be really pissed if I was just really good at something and then the website says, oh, you're out of here. I would be so upset. So there's really no way to know. You know, it was funny. Before you and I sat down today and I said, hey, I want to talk sports with you. You had no idea that we were going to get into this. I had no idea we were going to get into this. But one thing I do know is that our conversations are always intriguing and they go 
fairly high level. I mean, we touched upon really gambling combinatorics and then your background, which I think plenty of people are curious about and say, okay, this guy's fairly sharp. What was his deal like growing up? And I told you about my deal. I played sports and I think I got invited to rocket camp once. And then they were like, all right, this dude's just, he's a mess. He's trying to assume command and we've got to get him out of here. But yeah, man, I, I love the food for thought that's coming from this conversation and hearing a different side of sports than people are really accustomed to talking about. Because I think your casual fan is going to put on their jersey on Sunday, crush some beers, enjoy themselves, maybe put a bet on the Super Bowl. But there is an entirely different world that is emerging with data science relative to sports. And I, it's been there for a while, but the thing is, is it's becoming more complex. It's getting better over time. And eventually, do you think that sports gambling, just like the stock market in a way, is just going to be computers betting against computers? Because they're the only ones that can truly compete I, with one another? I would think it would really tend into that direction. I really think so. And then, well, there's a whole nother conversation about efficient markets, which we could do another time. But I'd love to do that. Listen, I can hang in this conversation. I'm not to get into that. That's a good one. But, but I think it'll tend toward being automated bots trading bets, just like the stock market. Because the guy who's just betting, they're really at a disadvantage. If they do not have this data, they're at a huge disadvantage. Now, the one thing different with the stock market and sports is that the stock market, these companies aren't just playing a real-time game. And what I mean by that is they have strategy, things move a lot slower in the business world. Sure. In a football game- And there's a lot more unknown variables that you're never going to have access to necessarily, right. right? Right. But my point here is that in a football game, one guy can fumble a ball and change the game. One guy can miss a field goal and change the game. So that's why it's a bit different than the stock market. It's a lot harder in the stock market for one guy to accidentally miss a basket, miss a field goal and change the game. What would a business equivalent of that be? It really have to be something like a CEO data breach scandal. Data breach scandal, yeah, something like that. But either way, that kind of thing. There are ways to at least try and address it. You might have some time to figure a few things out before it goes public. All I'm saying is things happen a lot faster in a football game that cannot be predicted at all. And obviously, a data breach you can't predict, but you you should be trying to protect from that. There's no way to protect from missing a field goal other than just practice, practice, practice. But the point is you have humans that are playing a game real time. So that's where the automation and and robots and algorithms might not be able to be as successful as in the stock market is because each person has so much responsibility in a game. Right. And that's where I can see the best gamblers might be a human who uses this data to advise them on their gambling. Kind of like I was saying how the head coach should use this data to help them make choices. I'm not saying the computer should decide 
should be the head coach. You're not saying that not they saying should the roll computer, out Alexa coach. Exactly. I'm saying you should have a head coach, a human who understands the game and Alexa data, Alexa giving the coach the data to help. So in the, as a parallel, I'm saying for the same reason you might have a gambler who has the data to help him pick, not necessarily have the algorithm itself pick. In the stock market, you're just having it do it live in real time, have the algorithm buy and sell in most cases, in a lot of cases. You know, it's really interesting. I know somebody, he's he's an elite gambler, I'm not going to lie, but he prefers sports gambling to investing in the stock market because he said he said it's easier to predict. It's easier to predict sports than it is picks in the stock market oftentimes. It's very interesting. But you know where it gets interesting is it doesn't matter how easy it is to predict necessarily. It's because if I can predict that the best team in the NFL is going to beat the worst team. Sure. But the spread on that bet is going to be so far off that it's going to make no sense for me to bet on the losing team on the bet at all because the spread is already going to account for that. So that's where the data matters is it's not so much whether you can predict or not. It's whether you can predict better than the average other person betting. If your prediction is better than what the spread says, because the spread itself gives you a prediction. Am I right? That's what the spread is. 100%. So if you're better at predicting than what the Vegas odds are, that's where you make money. Not if you're the best predictor. Anyone can predict that the NFL team's going to beat a junior little league team. Right. Like anyone can predict that. It's just no one's ever going to take the side of the bet for the Little League That's team. That's an interesting parallel. An NFL team playing against a, a, yeah, a they would, youth yeah. baseball team. <laughs> a, a baseball team, not even, the same, not even the same sport. So you're saying, I get what you're saying, though. It's easy to make the predictions, but when you have the gradations that exist with the spread and say, okay, there's this team's obviously going to win, but by how much? And then it's really if your algorithm can outfox the spread, right? Right. Then that's when you're talking about having an elite level. And, and what is the algorithm. spread? The spread is the common thought of what the the prediction is. So it's the common gambler, the average of what the people in general think as their prediction. That's right. what the spread is. So basically, it's not so much if you're the best, if I can say 80% chance they're going to win, 20% chance they're going to lose. It's not so much how good at predicting I am. It's whether I can predict better than the average person on the other side of the bet. Because when you think about it, every single bet has someone on the other side. If I bet 20 bucks that the Washington whatever their team name is going to be. The Washington football team. The Washington football team. If I bet 20 bucks, they're going to win. Someone else is on the other side of that bet every single time. There is someone else there, right? So there's always someone else on the other side. If I win, that person pays me whatever you know the, the win is. If I lose, that person gets my 20 bucks minus the house cut, whatever. But there is someone on the other side. So when you think about it, you might be going to a cage in Vegas and putting in your bet, but enough people are taking the other side of the bet. It might be a faceless person, but there is someone on the other side of that bet. Sure. So really the question is, who's taking the other side of that bet? If you can predict better than they can, 
Why are they betting? They must think they can predict better than you. Otherwise, they would not be taking the bet or they're just illogical. Well, most people are illogical. So this basically comes down to a whole theory in the stock market called the efficient market hypothesis, which would have to be a whole nother Darby cast. But we can do that. The point is, when you're betting against someone else, no one bets with the intention to lose the bet, unless you're illogical, right? When you bet, you want to win. So if you're betting 20 bucks on the Washington football team to win, you must think you're right. Yes. So the question is, who are the people going to be that are taking that other side of the bets when you have data driving the elite gamblers? I would think eventually they would decide not to play if they keep losing every single time or most of the time. But hey, gambling's gambling. Maybe they continue to gamble because they, they love gambling. So it's hard to say. You got a lot of diehard fans of football that may not be the most sophisticated at all times. So it's hard to say whether they'll stop gambling if they can't win. I don't know. But if they were smart, they would either use data or stop gambling. That, that's my opinion. And I think on that note, that'll wrap it up for the Darby cast. This has been enlightening. I didn't expect it to be anything but. And yeah, games have changed because we've got sharp players like yourself entering into games that you're going to dominate in by using your big old brain. That's how it works, man. Yeah, I think so. We'll see. We'll see how it continues to trend. Well, Z Money, thank you again for stopping by on the Darby cast. This is your second time here. Hopefully we can get you back again if you would agree to it, because I would like to hear about a little bit of market efficiency. And I know it's going to go way over my head, but we'll pop you in on an economics Wednesday and we can talk about that. And you can just uh, explode my brain with some conceptual stuff that goes real high level. And then we'll try to walk it back down to digestible pieces. All right. Sounds good. Thanks for having me.